So if you have your Bible out, I would encourage you now to turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians in the New Testament. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the city of Ephesus, and as we talked about in the surrounding region. This is on the the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And this was a a church that was known for faithfulness, for, for love. And so Paul is writing to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. And you remember that last week we talked about the the grace of God. We looked at chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, and we said that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We said that we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. It's the, the gracious gospel of salvation. And then today... Paul is launching into a a new discussion, and this will be going from verse 11, really through chapter 3. It's going to be focusing on the church and the the distinction of Jew and Gentile, the unity that we have within the body of Christ, flowing out of the gospel that he has been expounding up until this point. And so again, this is... Ephesians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we look today to your word, sharper than any two-edged sword, and we ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, and understanding through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as I said, this is a significant turning point in the flow of Ephesians. And actually, a piece of trivia, this is the first command in the book of Ephesians. This is the first imperative thus far. Up until this point, Paul has been expounding the sovereignty of God. He's been expounding the grace of God, our fallen condition, dead in our trespasses and sins, being made alive together with Christ. But then look at the command in verse 11. Therefore, in other words, in light of all that he's been talking about from verse 1 through verse 10, therefore, remember. Remember is an important command throughout the Bible. If you were to do a Bible search 
on the word remember. In all the places in Scripture that it's used as a command, you would see commands like remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, or remember that you were slaves in Egypt, or remember God bringing you up out of Egypt. Remember the steadfast love of the Lord. We're commanded over and over again in the Bible to remember. And that's significant. It actually says something about us as human beings that we are prone to forget. We need to be told over and over again that if we're not reminded over and over again, we'll forget. And so he says, Therefore, remember. But who is being commanded to remember? So look at verse 11 again in your Bible. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's giving a command to remember But here he's focusing on a subset within the church in Ephesus. Before this, he's been talking about the condition of humanity. Remember in verse 1 to 3 in this chapter, he talked about our lost condition in Adam, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says, but God made us alive together with Christ. This before and after is the condition of all of humanity. But here he focuses on a particular group within the church. He says, you Gentiles in the flesh. Notice he calls them the uncircumcision. In my translation, the English Standard Version, it puts it in quotation marks. Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So there's Jew called the circumcision. There's Gentile called the uncircumcision. And I think that what Paul's doing here is he's using the common term at the time, but he's also trying to be sensitive because in a sense, calling someone the uncircumcision was a pejorative term. You can think of of David calling Goliath the uncircumcised Philistine, uh, that calling someone the uncircumcision was not a polite way to to talk in ordinary conversation. And so Paul says, "I'm, I'm speaking to you Gentiles called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. And then notice there, he even says that it's the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And that's interesting because that phrase by hand most often in the Bible is used of idols, the the worship of false gods, something that is made by hand. And even though he's talking about circumcision, which in the Old Testament was instituted by God as the, the sign of inclusion in the covenant community, he's talking about the sense that there is a circumcision that is outward, but then there is also an inward spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart that he talks about in Colossians 2. So he's hinting at this idea. But look again, he's addressing the Gentiles, the uncircumcision. And he's saying, Gentiles in Ephesus, I want you to remember. 
And in a way, this comes to us with a special force because we, by and large, are Gentiles. Most of us in this room would be counted among the uncircumcision in the ancient world. Uh, There may be a few that are either watching or here who have Jewish ancestry, but for the most part, that's not the case in this room. And so when, when Paul then is addressing the Gentiles, he could be speaking to Gentiles in the Ephesian church, but then he's also speaking to us. He's saying Gentiles in the church in Garnet Valley, I want you to remember. You say, well, what does he want us to remember? And you'll notice that the first thing he wants us to remember is our former location. Not just our former condition, but there's a spatial language in this text. He, he wants us to remember our former location as Gentiles. So look at, at verse 12 in your Bible. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what was the the former location? You see those words that they were separated, alienated, strangers. And this is significant as we think about the promises of God in the Old Testament, that within the Old Testament period in the scripture, God had a a special relationship to Israel, to his covenant people. And they had so many privileges compared to the surrounding nations. They had the scripture. And therefore, they had the the promises of God delivered to them. They had the, the promise of Genesis 3.15 that eventually... The offspring of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. In the process, his heel would be bruised. The first statement of the gospel that there's hope. They had the promise of Genesis 12 that the offspring of Abraham would come who would be a blessing to the nations. They had the the promise given to Moses that God would raise up a prophet like Moses from among his brothers. They had the, the promise of 2 Samuel 7 that eventually God would raise up an offspring of David who would rule and reign as king forever, that David would always have a son on the throne. And then you go into the prophets in the Old Testament, and then over and over again we see the promise, the the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. We see the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, We see the the promise of one who would come as mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So many promises of deliverance, of hope within the Old Testament. And the Jewish people would hear these promises over and over again as they studied the scriptures. But they not only had the, the promises, they also had sacrifice. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 
God took an animal, killed an animal, and then used the skin to clothe Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness and their shame. And what we see is that theme then continuing throughout the Old Testament. You had the the Passover lamb as they came out of bondage in Egypt. And it showed the, the, the blood that would be poured out so that the judgment of God would pass over the people, pointing eventually to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. They had then the the sacrificial system outlined in the book of Leviticus, the sacrificial system that was used at the tabernacle when they were in their nomadic phase in the desert and then initially when they came into the land. And then eventually the the sacrificial system that was put into action at the temple in Jerusalem, where people would go up bringing sacrifices, making atonement before the Lord. And so they had this constant reminder over and over again that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This reminder over and over again of the, the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, the fact that God himself would provide a sacrifice, that God himself would give the the true ultimate Isaac to be sacrificed, not simply the son of Abraham, Isaac, who was brought up to the mountain, but didn't have to face sacrifice in that moment. Again, so many themes of sacrifice pointing to Christ to come. So they had the promises, they had the sacrifices, but they also had what are called types of Christ in the Old Testament. And types are are patterns that God worked into events and people within history, pointing forward to a future reality. And so I mentioned David a moment ago facing Goliath, the uncircumcised Philistine. And David becomes then a type of Christ. He defeats Goliath, and yet Christ comes as the greater David to defeat Satan and sin and death. We have Joshua bringing the people of Israel into the promised land. Then you have Jesus as the the greater Joshua, bringing his people into the new heavens and the new earth. You have so many types, patterns, pointing to Christ to come. This is why Jesus told the religious leaders that if they had believed Moses, they would have believed him. In Luke 24, he talks about how the entire Old Testament testifies to Jesus. And so Old Testament people confronting the promises, confronting the sacrifices, confronting the types, could put their faith in the promised Messiah And as we're told in Romans chapter 4, they could actually be counted righteous. They could be justified through faith in the promised Messiah yet to come, held out to them in the religious system that God had established for them in the scriptures. Incredible privilege. But then you contrast that privilege with the surrounding nations. And again, I'm thinking right now of the Old Testament period. The surrounding nations had perhaps a common grace sense that there is a God. 
other nations practice sacrifice to one degree or another because I think as, as humans we recognize that something is wrong, something has to die to make things right. But yet when it came to Christ, they were Christless. They, they didn't have the, the promises of God. They didn't have the sacrifices pointing to Christ. They didn't have the types pointing to Christ. They, they had no opportunity to put their trust in the promised Messiah. They were also, as it, it says here in our text, they were without Christ, but they were also without hope. They perhaps had limited hope in false gods, but they didn't have real lasting hope in the God of Israel. And, they, and ultimately, they were without God in the world. Look at that language in verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. And in the original language, without God is one word, and it's atheos, which is where we get the word atheist, that they were atheists in the world. Not in the sense that they didn't believe that God exists, but what he's saying is that they were atheos, they were atheists in the sense that, yes, they maybe had false gods, but they didn't have a relationship with the true living God of Israel who created the world. And so they were without hope and without God in the world. So that was the Old Testament period, distinction between Jew and Gentile. And perhaps the only exceptions were the few people that were brought from the Gentile nations into Israel. You think of Ruth or Rahab being brought into Israel, but they would find hope by entering into the covenant people So they were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. But we see this this same reality today, even in the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so today there are are, believing Jews, and there are many unbelieving Jews in the world today. But even for the unbelieving world within Judaism, there's still an incredible privilege that they have. Because... They share with us 39 books of inspired, holy, inerrant scripture. They have all of the promises, all of the types held out for them within scripture. And so even if there's not an acknowledgement of Jesus as the Messiah, that there there is an awareness of how the world was created, of who God is on some level, the, the plan of salvation laid out. And there's actually this this hope that is presented in Scripture, in Romans 11, that eventually in God's providence that there will be an ingathering in the last days of ethnic Israel into the church, a a revival among the Jews. And and so we pray for that. We pray for uh, ethnic Israel to, on a large scale, come to faith, that they would see the promises in their Scripture, that they would see the hope that was laid out, that they would see the the true Messiah in Jesus. And so we pray for that. We hope for missions to the Jewish people. But we also recognize the privilege, access to so much knowledge of God, of the promises, the sacrifices, the types. But then you think about that in contrast to the nations, to the Gentile nations, even today. Yes, there are, are certain Gentile nations. You could think of 
Northern Europe, or you can think of America or other places where there are Gentile nations where the gospel at various times has taken hold, that there can be you know, access to Christianity or to the gospel. But by and large, that is the exception in the world, to have access to the word of God. For instance, here are some statistics from Wycliffe Bible translators. They do wonderful work bringing the Bible into languages around the world. And it says there are at least 7,300 languages spoken or signed in the world, and at least 1.5 billion people do not have the full Bible in their language. That's more than the people in the entire continent of Africa. At least 1,600 languages have access to the New Testament and some portions of Scripture in their language. More than 700 languages have a complete Bible. And then this is the, the shocking statistic that 1,600 languages still need a Bible translation started at all. That there are 1,600 late languages spoken in the world where people have the, don't have the Bible at all. No Bible. And so you think of, without the scriptures, what they're missing out on. Without the scriptures in their language, and especially in the heart language that they grow up speaking within their home, that they, they don't have the opportunity to hear how God created the world or to hear about the hope and the promise laid out in Genesis 3 or, or to know the, the promises and the sacrifices, the types, the seals in the Old Testament or the coming of Christ in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, to even know the name of Christ and his love and his sacrifice for us, to, to have no knowledge of that, and to think of how tragic that condition is. And that's why Paul says that it is without hope, without God in the world. And I love the, the word, at least in the, the way it's pulled into to English in our text, in verse 12, he says that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Thinking of this, this idea of alienation, that people can be alienated from God, alienated from the covenant community. And that idea of alienation is even something you see in the secular world, in psychological literature. For example, I, I found a an article from Healthline, and the whole article was on the theme of alienation. And so I want to read this because I think it speaks to this condition that we find ourselves in, even if we don't know why we feel alienation. So listen, this is from Healthline. It says, alienation occurs when a person withdraws or becomes isolated from their environment or from other people. People who show symptoms of alienation will often reject loved ones or society. They may also show feelings of distance and estrangement, including from their own emotions. Alienation is a complex yet common condition. It is both sociological and psychological, and I would add theological. And it says it can affect your health and aggravate existing medical conditions. Treatment involves diagnosing the cause of alienation. Why do we feel the sense of alienation? And then to follow through with treatment. Symptoms include feeling helpless, 
feeling that the world is empty or meaningless, feeling left out of conversations or events, feeling different or separate from everyone else, having difficulty approaching and speaking with others, especially parents, feeling unsafe when interacting with others, refusing to obey rules. So that's the, the problem of alienation described from the secular world's perspective. And they're onto something because as humanity, we have this deep sense of alienation, this deep sense that something is wrong within us, that something is wrong in the world. And part of it goes to our fallenness in Adam. Remember, that's what Paul described back in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 2, that he, he said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that the part of it is this, this alienation because of spiritual death. But then at the same time, we have the sense of alienation as the Gentile nations, as those cut off from the hope and the promise of God and his covenant community. So maybe even today you feel that sense. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you are baptized. Maybe you have always been involved in religious gatherings, but you still feel that sense of alienation. Maybe like you are the one who's always on the outside looking in. Others are on the inside looking out, but you're on the outside looking in. That you feel hopeless. You feel Christless. You feel Godless, You wonder if there is any way forward, any path in life of hope and meaning and purpose. And that's where we see hope held out in our text for us. Because we remember our former condition. That's what Paul has been describing in verse 11 and 12. But then finally in verse 13, he brings us to our current condition in Christ, our our current location in Christ. Look at verse 13 in your Bible. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you notice that the spatial language, he's saying you were, you were far off, you were, you were distant, but now you have been brought near. And notice how we have been brought near. He says that we have been brought near in Christ Jesus. That Jesus comes as the true Israel. He becomes true Israel, stepping into the role of Israel. Jesus becomes the true Davidic king. And so when we identify with him, the covenant head, when we are united to Jesus by faith, we are then united to Jesus, the covenant head, and we are brought into the covenant people of God. And this isn't what sometimes is called replacement theology. Sometimes that's a pejorative where people say that you have the, the Jewish people as the covenant people in the Old Testament, and then somehow they're forgotten and replaced by the church in the New Testament. This isn't a replacement theology, but I would call it really an addition theology, an expansion 
theology. Because the idea is that, that what does it mean to be part of the covenant? It is to be identified with the covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all identify with him, become the true spiritual Israel. And that's why in Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, this, this picture of the vine and the branches. And, and he says that Israel was the original branch, and he says that we are the wild vine that has been grafted in to the, to, the, to the root. And that what emerges then is one body, one covenant community, one covenant people of God in Christ Jesus. No longer defined by the distinction of Jew and Gentile, but all one in Christ. We see that just a few verses down in the text that we'll look at next week, verse 16 said that he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That there's no longer multiple bodies, but there is one body in Christ, united across racial divides, cultural divides, one in Jesus, the wall of hostility torn down by the cross. So look again, though, at verse 13. He says, we have been brought near in Christ, in union with Christ. But then notice how else we have been brought near in verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's by the blood of Christ that we are brought near. And in this context, we're, we're moving toward temple language. That's where Paul is going to end at the very last verse of chapter 2, the last two verses actually, that in him the whole structure is being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul is turning us to think about this image of the temple. And you remember in the Old Testament, the, the structure of the temple. Uh, we, we talk about this a lot because it's so important for our understanding that if you were to go up to the temple at the time of Jesus, there was an outer court, and it was actually called the, the court of the Gentiles. It's what Jesus said that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, that there was a sense, even in the Old Testament, that the nations would be gathered and that they would come to the Mount of the Lord to worship. And so believing Gentiles could go up to the court of the Gentiles to pray to the God of Israel. But they weren't allowed into the next court. So you would pass through the court of the Gentiles uh, into what was called the court of the women. And that is where the, the common Israelites could go to worship, where they would offer gifts, where they would offer their sacrifices. And then you could pass through the court of the women into what was called the court of the priests, the next inner ring. And there was the great altar where they would offer sacrifices daily. And from there you would off, walk into the temple structure itself, into the holy place with the, the bread of the presence, with the, the incense, the pleasing aroma going up to the Lord. And then there was an enormous curtain and you would pass through the curtain into the most holy place. And right in front of you, as you entered, you would see the Ark of the Covenant, with the Ten Commandments. You would see the two seraphim with their wings outstretched on either side. 
And then you would be in the, the, at that point, the symbolic, holy presence of God in the midst of his people. And you'll remember that only the high priest could enter the most holy place, only on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Yom Kippur, and that only with blood, offering and sacrifice. And you say, well, why are you describing the temple architecture? I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says that we are brought near by the blood of Christ. That what he's saying is that we were the Gentile nations. We were far off. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise and ultimately alienated from God himself, without God in the world. But then he says, now by the blood of Christ we're brought near. That we start spiritually on, in the court of the Gentiles. We approach through the court of the Gentiles, through the court of the women, through the court of the priests, through the holy place, into the most holy place, not on the basis of our own goodness, our own works, our own righteousness, but on the basis of the blood of Christ, that he took the punishment that we deserve, bearing our, the wrath of God against our sin, opening up the way for us to be brought near, not just to the covenant people, but brought near to God himself, the loving God of fellowship and of grace and mercy. So today, maybe you feel that, that alienation. Maybe you feel that you are at the outside looking in. So the call for all of us is to, to take hold of the offer that is here in the text, to take hold of the promise that we can be brought near in Christ by his blood. It's what Paul says that we are, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at your love and your faithfulness. Uh, that, that we, as fallen humanity in Adam, had no hope that you would have been just to abandon the entire human race in our sin, um, to, to never redeem us. Lord, you would have been just as loving, just as just, just as holy, but yet you enacted a plan of redemption. And Lord, you would have been just as holy, just as loving, just as good, if you had left that only to the people of Israel. Uh, but Lord, you are abounding in mercy that you have opened that way, uh, that way into the holy place, even to us here who are Gentiles by birth, that you have opened up for us to be united to Christ, to be united into the covenant community, given the, the New Testament sacraments of of baptism and the Lord's Supper, replacing sacrifices and circumcision in the Old Testament. But, but Lord, we, we marvel at that grace, that mercy. Lord, we do pray for those of the circumcision, those uh, of the, the Jewish people who have not repented and trusted in Christ, um, that though outwardly uh, they have the, the promises and the scripture, uh, Lord, we pray that they could take hold of that deeper heart reality of, of knowing you 
as Lord and, and Savior, knowing the hope that is found in, in Jesus. And Lord, for us, we pray that we wouldn't despise the grace of God, that we wouldn't presume on the grace of God, but that we would see ourselves as those who have been brought near in Christ by the blood of Jesus, our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.